If you remember where we left off with Moses, things weren't going very well for him. Uh, he had this high, this kind of mountaintop experience where uh, he spoke with God, heard from God at the burning bush. Um, of course, his greatest fear was going and speaking to the people. He said, God, they're not going to listen to me. Yes, they will listen to you. They will believe that I sent you. He goes to them and he was well received. And this was like a celebration. He's like, yes, God is faithful. God is doing these things. God is going before me. God is making these things happen. And then last week we saw him go to Pharaoh and when he goes before Pharaoh, he ultimately walks in probably with a little bit of swagger and with his head held high and Pharaoh looking at him like, who are you? And, oh, I remember you. You used to live in my house. And um, so he comes up to him and he says, um, the God of Israel, Yahweh, has sent me to tell you to let his people go out into the wilderness, a three days journey, and let them sacrifice and worship him. And so he's thinking at this moment, like, how's God going to come through? What's going to happen? I mean, was he just going to let us go? And then Pharaoh looks at him and goes, who is Yahweh? And no, I'm not letting your people go. And if you have enough time to sit there and dream about vacations, obviously I'm not working you hard enough. And so what we saw was he increased the burdens of the people. And so this becomes a problem for Moses because they go out and the, the ones who are watching over the slaves out in the fields, they're having to go get their own straw now. The, the setup before was that Pharaoh provided the straw for the brick-making process. Now they had to go get their own straw for the brick-making process, but you now have to produce just as many bricks as you did as when I was providing the straw for you. Because if you've got time to think about going out in the wilderness and taking a vacation and spending some time out there worshiping and all that kind of thing, you've got way too much time on your hands. So he increased the burdens. And I don't think there's a couple of things there. Number one, I think it is a reminder of how much of a slap in the face what Moses said was to Pharaoh. Because he basically said, hey, there's a God bigger than yours, and it's not in Egypt. We want to leave Egypt, and we want to leave you to go worship something that's more worthy of our worship outside of Egypt. So you can understand why Pharaoh is taking this personally. Now, Pharaoh is, is, is okay with a whole bunch of gods, but they're all under Egypt's control. They're all involved there. There is no god outside of Egypt that's more powerful than Egypt. Egypt is the most powerful place on the face of the planet. Who are you to think that there is a god over slaves out in the wilderness that's more powerful than anything we have here. Who is this Lord? And of course, last week I, I, I mentioned when I taught this, that I believe that this is the thesis statement for the whole rest of the book of Exodus. Because when he says, who is the Lord? Now from this point forward, the rest of the book of Exodus, everything that you find in it is an answer to that question. You don't know who I am? Guess what? You're going to be well versed with who I am by the time my people leave Egypt. I'm just not going to rescue them. I'm going to very much introduce myself to you and let you know exactly who I am, and I'm going to bring them out. And then when he gets them out into the wilderness, guess what he does? 
he is becoming acquainted with his people. It says that literally he has them fashion and form a tabernacle where he comes and dwells among his people. He begins to give the law to Moses, which Moses turns around and gives to the people that tells them who God is and what he's like and and the things that are righteous and holy and the things that he loves and the things that he accepts. And this tells a lot about his character and about how he thinks and the things that he values. So the whole rest of the book of Exodus is answering the question, who is the Lord? This is who Yahweh is. Both I'm going to introduce myself to Pharaoh and he's going to know who I am. And I'm going to introduce myself to my people and they're going to know who I am. So really, I think that is a pivotal passage that we had last week. Who is the Lord? But now it comes into this passage here because now as he walked away and he realizes all the burdens of the people have increased, there is this burden that you don't see. And I think the burden is that the people began to see their value and their identity caught up in the amount of bricks that they produce. Now, that may seem like a little small thing to you, but let me just kind of tease that out a little bit. If you think about it, even in our day and time, we are known for what we produce. And it's really hard for any of us to think of our worth or our value outside of what our life produces. Now, this is exactly what they had spent 400 years becoming very acclimated to. My worth, my value is in how much I produce. And if I'm not able to produce, I don't have worth and I don't have value. Now, that's something they learned in Egypt. That's something they learned in slavery. That's something they learned in bondage. Guess what? We learned the same thing in slavery to sin, in bondage to sin, and trying to find our identity in the things of this life. And I like to use this illustration, but it's, it's very much when you go to a party, you know, the first thing somebody asks you is, what is your name, right? And then the second thing they're going to ask you is, what do you? Yeah, because that's our identity. I mean, that's the first two things people want to know about you. What do I call you and what is your worth? You know, what's your value? You think about, uh, we pay people according to What? or most people, some people are on salary, but most people you get paid according to the amount of time that you work or you get paid by the hour, right? So it's hard for us to think of an hour devoid of what that hour is worth or what it can produce. Matter of fact, when we start thinking of other jobs, we think, hmm, I wonder if they will pay me more per hour to do what I'm doing over here and I will take that because they obviously value what I do more because my time is worth more. How many of you have sat around one day because you are tired and at the end of the day, you think to yourself, I have wasted an entire day. That mindset is to sit around and do nothing is waste. Think about what God's calling them to do. He's not calling them out in the wilderness to, hey, come make some bricks for me. He's not calling them out in the wilderness to come out there and do some work and tidy the place up. He's calling them out there to worship. What does worship look like? It's reverence. It's rest. Remember, one of the things he's going to introduce to them very early on is this idea of Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Why? Because after 400 years, it's hard for you to think of your life as valuable outside of just the production of bricks. And I want you to take a day a week to remind yourself that you're not a machine, that your value doesn't come from what you produce. Your value comes from the fact that I love you 
and that you're mine and that I've called you into a relationship. You're made in my image and I've called you to be my people. That's where your value comes from. So it's very important because even though in our day and time we fail often to celebrate a Sabbath, I think it shows in the ineffectiveness of the church and the ineffectiveness of people because we spend all of our time trying to increase our value and not recognizing the value that's already there. Really, the Sabbath day is not about ceasing, it's about entering. It's about entering into this different economy. It's about entering into this different understanding. It's, it's a day where you allow your mind to be released from what the other six days did to it, where all you heard at work was produce, 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 and all you heard was, you're not here enough, and you need to be here more, and we've got to meet this deadline, we've got to meet that deadline, we've got to do this, and we've got to conquer this, and this is in the future, and we've got to keep planning. And you can't help but think, my value comes from what I produce, and God wants you to take a day a week to remind yourself, oh, no, it doesn't. Because if you do that, you'll never produce enough. It'll never be enough. And ultimately, the, the position that the people come in and we see revealed here in this passage, I think comes from that mentality. And I think you have to understand that because it's a temptation for all of us to enter into that and to think in that way. Moses gets to this point where he has this high moment where he's on top of the mountain and man, everything's working out great. Then he goes before Pharaoh and things get worse. And if you remember last week, Moses really has some questions for God and some statements. He was like, why have you called me to do this? I told you I wasn't the person to go and speak to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh has made things worse and you're not making things better. Now, at that moment, we would begin to think, hmm, that's pretty bold to say that to God. And how in the world does God put up with that? Why did God allow Moses to talk to him that way? And I want to remind you that God is much more long-suffering than sometimes we give him credit for. I would say that you could look at this in a negative way, that Moses didn't understand, he didn't hear what God promised, and he wasn't believing. But I could also see there's some growth here. Because what Moses is learning to do is, when he does have questions, when he does have concerns, go to God with them. You know, people haven't learned this yet. When they had questions and concerns, they went to Pharaoh. Hey, you're making all this problems for us. Hey, it's your people's fault. Moses goes to God and says, hey, this isn't working out the way I thought you were saying it was going to work out. Why is Pharaoh seeming more powerful here? Why is he making things worse and you're not making things better? I think that God is long-suffering and patient because he comes to him. And I think that's something we need to learn. God's not afraid of your problems. God's not afraid of your questions. God's not afraid of your doubts. Obviously, yes, you need to be reverent when you come to him. But when your questions and your doubt are from an honest heart that is searching for answers and not accusatory, but, but searching and saying, God, this is what I see and I don't understand this and I thought you called me to this and, and it doesn't seem to be working out this way at all. God welcomes that. Do you think God's intimidated by those things? No. God knows, scripture tells us, he remembers, he sees, and he hears he understands what it, the situation's like that you're walking through. And that's why he entertains those prayers. If you think about what's being said here, it's often the same questions that we have for God. 
God, my circumstances aren't working out nearly the way I thought they would. I thought that when I gave my life to you, I thought that you were going to be my deliverer. I thought you were going to be my savior. I thought you were going to help bring me out of this bondage of sin. And it seems like all I do is sin all the more. Seems like I'm more in bondage to these things than I was before I started following you. God, why haven't you healed me? God, why haven't you healed my child? God, why are you allowing me to walk through this difficulty? Why have I lost my loved one? Why have I lost my relationship with my spouse? Why is my marriage falling apart? Why are my kids so far away? God, I thought, but you haven't. Really, it's the, probably the heart of a lot of our honest prayers. We're being honest, God, I don't understand why you're letting these things happen. I don't understand why I'm having to walk through this difficulty. I remember a family here in our church real early on, and they had a son who was um, mentally challenged in a very difficult way. He's the sweetest young man that you would ever talk to, just nice and considerate. And, but if he ever turned, like in a moment, the switch could go, and he would become very angry and violent. And when he did, he was very strong and powerful in that moment. And finally, they got to uh, a point where they had to uh, find a place for him to stay outside of their home. And one of the things that his dad said to me was one time when he was just talking about it, very broken, he said, you know, I know God's real. I know that he's out there. I know he's my savior. I know he died on the cross for my sin. He goes, but I can't help but ask the question, God, why did you give me something that I can't handle? Why did you give me something that I have to turn over to the state? Because I can't find a way to manage this on my own. And you know, youth ministry didn't prepare me for that because the most difficult thing I heard was, why does she not like me? You know, that was you know, youth ministry. That was probably some of the hardest things I had to answer. <laughs> and you will go from that to pastoring. And that was one of the first really difficult things. I, you know what? I, I don't know. But even today, I don't know how I would fully answer that. But what I said was, I don't know. I think you just have to wait. I think you just have to wait and see. And it's very easy to look at the circumstances that we're in and say, God forgot me and God's not being faithful and God's not coming through. And it's very easy to do that many times because we're in the thick of it. We're walking through that darkness and it's hard to see anything else. But I think that's why scripture is given to us is to understand that from the beginning to the end, God is faithful. And there are so many promises and, and there are so many examples of people who are walking through dark, difficult times that they didn't understand and they thought God was a million miles away and yet God was right there just like that song we were singing. He was with them in the fire. He was with Noah in the flood. He was with them when they walked through darkness. He was with David when he was out in the wilderness and his son was trying to overthrow him. He is with us in those dark times. And it's in those dark times that we have to go back to Scripture and remind ourselves of the character of God and who he is and how even the people in Scripture didn't fully understand him and fully understand what he was doing in their lives when they walked through incredible difficulty. Have you questioned God? Have you ever found yourself asking him difficult questions? I think it's okay. 
And I think the thing that we should walk away from it with is to rejoice in the fact that he's so long-suffering, that he puts up with our questions, that he entertains our doubts, that he listens to the prayers when we don't trust him, when we question his character. You know why? Because he loves us. He loves us. Look at what it says again in verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of this land. And and basically, after Moses questions God's character and questions his goodness and questions his faithfulness and questions, did you even pick the right person for this? Because I told you from the beginning, I'm not the person. I told you he wasn't going to listen to me. And God was probably saying, I told you he wasn't going to listen to you. But apparently you missed that part of it. But Pharaoh is going to let you go, Moses. You think about that. God is patient. Why? Because he's telling him the same thing he's already told him. Before he ever sent him, he said, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh, but Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. He's not going to let the people go. I'm going to harden his heart. Why? Because I'm going to display who I am to him. I'm going to show my power through you. Oh, God, you're not going to do this. I'm not the person for this. He's not going to listen. Look at what he says again. You're going to see what I'm going to do to Pharaoh. With a strong hand, he's going to send you out. With a strong hand, he's going to drive you all from the land. This is what he's going to do, Moses. Pharaoh is going to let you go. He is going to send you out. He's going to, not only is he going to send you out, he's going to be glad to see you leave by the time I'm done with him. And look at verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Now, it's important to understand that because God's already introduced himself to Moses at the burning bush. He already told him, I am Yahweh. But here he reminds them again, I am that I am. I am what I've always been. I am the one consistent factor in this whole scenario. I'm the only one that's always been. I'm the only one that's always going to be. And therefore, I think you need to trust me more then you trust your wavering emotions at this point. That's good advice for all of us, isn't it? You know, um, have you ever seen that uh, show, The Undercover Boss? I don't think they show it anymore, or maybe they do, but it's on some godforsaken channel probably now. It's not highlighted anymore, but um, you know, the whole scenario is this guy comes in and he's like the boss, the CEO of some big company. And so he comes in and works some kind of menial job and he works with the people and kind of funny sometimes because the boss doesn't even know how the company works. Like some, sometimes that's the situation. And then sometimes you get the situation where the boss comes in there and he knows everything about it. And the guy's trying to tell him how the company works and, and what the um, ethos is behind the company. And the guy's like, no, that's, that's not it at all. It's, it's this. And then he's like, oh no, it's this. And then the guy's like trying to cheat his way through it. And he's like, oh, they expect you to do this, but don't ever do that. It's like nobody ever notices these things. And you're sitting there going, oh, no. And you get embarrassed and you start feeling like really hot even for that guy because you're embarrassed for him. Have you ever felt that as you watch that? Well, I don't know if it's the same thing or not, but it's kind of the way I feel that the people are experiencing God as he comes down and he introduces himself to them. Even though he's told them who he is, it's like they keep going on and everything that they've learned from themselves and learned from their circumstances and learned from their culture. And it's like they don't know who God is. And ultimately, that's why they doubt him is because they don't know him. They know his name, but they don't know him. 
You know, and it's, it's like uh, we're the same way, like many of you, maybe you don't know me, maybe we've never had a one-on-one conversation, but if you go to a store and you meet somebody and they say, where do you go to church, Mars Hill? Oh, do you know Jack Hester? You would say, yeah, I know him. But what you mean is you know what I look like and you know my name and you know where I work, but you don't know me. But if you had somebody come up to you and go, is Jack Hester your pastor? Yeah. And they kind of look around first and they go, do you know him? And you're like, no, why? What, what, what do you know that I don't know? I mean, there's, there's that kind of idea of, yeah, you might know him, but do you know him? And that's what you see developed here. They are now familiar with his name. Yes, this is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. This is Yahweh. This is the great I am. But they don't know him. And because they don't know him, they don't trust him. And that's so true. It's so true in your own lives. You can know a lot about God. You can know he's the God of the Bible, that he was faithful to Moses. But if you don't know him intimately, personally, you will never trust him with your difficult circumstances. You've got to walk with him and trust him and grow in a relationship with him to get to the point where you really trust him. Or else he's kind of like that boss that's there that's kind of in disguise. It reminds me of a time when uh, I... You know, very early on in our, my marriage, very early on in my parenting, um, I had a child who, good child for the most part, and I remember one day he comes through the, uh, the kitchen. I, I don't even remember what the circumstances were or what we were talking about. I just remember telling him, no, you can't do this. And he was like, well, but what about, and I was like, no, you can't do it. Listen, that's that's it. You can't do it. You're not going to listen to anything that I'm going to say, or you're not going to understand why I'm telling you I did, but you can't do it. No. Okay. That's it. So he sulks and he turns around. He starts walking away. And where our kitchen was, it was close to the garage. And we had one of those little rooms, you know, that's right above the garage it has like stair, stairs that go up to it. And it's like this little bitty room. It's like a tent, like a permanent tent. Cause the walls come in like that. And so he was going up there. And in the moment I thought, I was like, you know what? I always hated that when my parents said, you just got to do it because that said you had to do it. And I said I wasn't going to do that. So I was like, you know what? I need to follow that up a little bit more. So I started walking. I was going to follow him up there and talk to him a little bit more. So as he's walking up the steps, he doesn't know I'm right behind him. And I hear him say under his breath, he is so stupid. (laughs) And I was like, my grace that I had right here started sinking way down to my feet. It was almost completely gone. And and the first response was, I'm stupid. I'm stupid. How old are you? How much life have you lived? I'm stupid. And, and, And anyway, in that moment, I don't know what it was, but my anger actually started turning into like this deep compassion. And it was like, why? Why, why would he think that I'm stupid? I mean, why would he not trust me? I'm, I'm his dad. Like, I don't hold good things away from him. I, I'm not one that's out there trying to make his life miserable. I mean, I'm working hard. I, I share what I have with him. I spend as much time as I possibly can. I listen to his dumb story sometimes that he shares. Why in the world would he think that I'm stupid? And so I followed him on up there. And, and luckily, God changed my heart from the bottom of those stairs to the top of those stairs. And I sat him down. And I was like, listen, I heard what you just said. And his his eyes went real big and then he dropped his head down and I was like do you really think I'm stupid no sir 
was like, I don't know if that's honest or not. I said, but just let me tell you something. I love you. I mean, you're my kid. You're my boy. I want you to do so well in life. I want when you walk into a place to know that guy has character. He's dependable. He's the kind of guy that you can, you can take with you into a battle, into a foxhole, and you can depend on him. He's, he's dependable. He's reliable. He's a hard worker. I said, I only want the best for you. I said, I go to work and I do as much as I can to make what I can so that I can give you the best life that you can possibly have. I said, so whenever these short moments come, when I tell you to do something and you can't for the life of you figure out why in the world you would need to do it or not do it, in those moments, I just want you to remember the bigger picture, that this guy's on my side, that he wants what's best for me, that he listens to me and he loves me, and therefore, if I don't completely understand it, I should just trust him. And he said, yes, sir. And then walking down the steps, God said, what about me? And I thought, wow, that's powerful moment. And I don't really know if it actually happened walking down the steps, but I remember reflecting on that story and and really thinking that as much as he thought I was stupid and I was offended by that, and maybe I didn't say this directly, but how many times have I thought of God as stupid? He didn't know what he's doing. He's not going to come through. He doesn't have my best interest in mind. Now, maybe I didn't say it, but my thoughts were there. My actions showed where my heart was. And it's like I dismissed every good thing in my life that I could point directly to the grace of God. And I called every single bit of it into question because of one circumstance. Instead of letting all of those things be a testimony to trust God in this one I don't understand. And so easily, that's exactly where we find ourselves. I mean, it continues there. Look at what he says. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. I have remembered my covenant. So think about this for a moment. Number one, he gives him four promises. And you got to remember, at this point, he's just talking to Moses. Moses, I want to remind you, I'm the one who appeared. And notice there are four statements that he says that he did. I appeared. I established. I have heard. And I have remembered. Okay? Do you see that? So he's reminding Moses there of who he is. Moses, I know that you don't understand this. I know that you're questioning me. I know that you doubt my ability. But I just want to remind you of who I am. I am the one who appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the one that you even have this this idea of some kind of salvation or some kind of rescue from slavery is ever going to come from anyway. Remember, I'm the one who talked to him. I'm the one who told Abraham this. I'm the one who called him out of his paganism and gave him this prosperity. I'm the one who walked him around in the promised land and said, I'm giving this to your descendants. I'm the one that appeared to each one of them. I was the one faithful to give him a son in his old age. I was the one who was faithful to tell him, Isaac, which one of his sons the promise was going to come through. I was faithful 
to Jacob to bring him, to bless him, to give him the sons and to bring him into the land. Everything is happening according to plan. Everything I told Abraham was going to happen has been happening. I established my covenant with them. I told him what I was going to do. And I have heard, I'm familiar with the groanings. I know how difficult it is, but you have to trust me in this. There's so many things that you don't understand. I've remembered my covenant and I am here to act on what I have promised. I never make promises that I don't keep. Now, there's some odd things about this, uh, like verse 3, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. That's not entirely true, at least the way it looks on, on paper, because the covenant name of God shows up all the way through the book of Genesis. And Abraham does use the covenant name of God, Yahweh, at least according to Genesis, he does. So what does God mean here? And this is where we could take an hour long and go into the J-E-P-D uh, theory, you know, Jehovah, Elohim, uh, C-J-E, Priestly, and D, Deuteronomist. And, and that's a whole thing that if you were in my Old Testament class, I would walk you through it. But just let me save you from that. You don't want to know it, okay? So here's the ultimate thing. Why does he say this here? Why does he say that they did not know his name? I think it's exactly what I was referring to earlier that they knew him, but they're not gonna, they have not known God the way Moses is about to know God. Abraham has never seen the water split open. Abraham has never seen the kind of things that these plagues are gonna sit down on Egypt. Abraham has never seen what God is about to display. Moses and the people of Israel that lived in that time are about to see God and know God in a way that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and anyone before that have ever known him. He's going to make himself known in a powerful, undeniable kind of way. And then he also says in verse four, and I have a plan. It's a plan that's been unfolding for a long time. And I know that you don't understand it and you don't understand why it's my plan, but it is my plan. It's what I revealed to Abraham and it's happening exactly like I planned. And then he says in verse five, I have heard. Now this reminds me of what Moses wrote at the end of chapter two. Do you remember that? That's where we spent some time talking about where Moses says that God is a God who sees. He's a God who hears. He's a God who remembers and he's a God who knows. You remember that? We spent some time looking through that. Well, again, I told you at that time, you should find four markers, okay? Four highlighters, and you should write that on a Sharpie. Grab you a Sharpie, so you gotta go buy five things, four different color highlighters and a Sharpie to write on the highlighter. And on the highlighter, you need to write a God who sees, a God who knows, a God who hears, and a God who remembers. And then what you do is you go through the rest of the book of Exodus, you just highlight every time God says, I'm a God who remembers. I'm a God who sees. I see your affliction. I've seen what's happened here. I've heard the cries of the people. I know what's going on, Moses. I know these things. And what you will find as you flip through the book of Exodus, it'll just have colors all over the place. Because this is something that is a theme that keeps repeating itself over and over and over again. Ever since the end of chapter 2, you're going to see it constantly throughout the rest of the book of Exodus. I remember, I know, I see, and I hear. 
how could God write, or how could Moses write that in chapter two? I believe that he writes that in chapter two, because remember, he writes this all after it happens. He's not writing it as it happens. So when he sits back and reflects and starts writing down the events of his life and the events of the Exodus, he writes in chapter two, this is who God is, because he knows what's coming in the rest of the book. And chapter six is just an explanation. He knows what God does and what God says to him and how God displays it. So very early on, he introduces to her readers, his readers, he says, listen, this is who God is. He sees, he hears, he remembers, he knows. And then look at verse six. Say therefore to the people of Israel. So the first four things were for Moses and the next seven things are for the people of Israel. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am what? I am the Lord. Same thing I said to you. I am the Lord. Say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And watch this. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Seven I will promises sandwiched by I am the Lord. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. I am the Lord. I make promises. That's who I am. I fill my book with promises. And guess what? I'm the promise keeper. I'm the one that gives promises and I fulfill those promises. And if I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it and I follow through with it. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. This is my covenant name. This is who I am. This is how you know me. I will bring you out of your burdens. I will deliver you from your slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. I will take you as my people. I will be your God. I will bring you into the land. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Now, I think this is awesome here because number one, there's seven statements. I mean, how awesome is that? Seven I will statements. Now, if you are, if you've ever participated in Passover with us here at Mars Hill, or if you're signed up to do it this coming week, um, you're going to understand that as you celebrate a Passover Seder, there are four glasses of wine. There are a part of the Seder dinner. Now, each one of them is representative of one I will statement. Now, they don't look at all seven of these. They look at four of them that are really the overarching ones. And so as you go through the Passover Seder, there are four glasses that you drink, and each one is representative of one of the I will statements that's really the overarching I will statement. And they have a name for each cup, okay? Now, here's what's beautiful, and I'm not going to spoil it because of those of you who are coming this week, but as you walk through the Passover Seder, the thing that you're going to be blown away by was not God's faithfulness to the Israelites. That's going to be amazing enough, but what's going to blow your mind when you walk away from it is to see how Christ is in every aspect of the Passover, and we're going to show it to you very clearly how Jesus is the fulfillment of every aspect of it. I want you to look at these statements and I want to show you how Jesus is the fulfillment of every one of those. I will bring you out of your burdens. The scripture, when you get to the New Testament, the scripture is very clear. The New Testament writers say 
that Jesus has come and he paid the debt to our sins so that we could come out from under the burdens. He says, take my yoke upon you. It's easy. It's light. Throw off those burdens. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He brings us out from under our burdens. I will deliver you from your slavery. Paul says that we are no more slaves to sin, that we are redeemed in Christ and alive. We're not dead in sin anymore. We've been brought out of that slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. How did Jesus afford all those promises fulfilled in our lives? Outstretched arms on a cross where he became the sacrifice and he died for us. I will take you to be my people. The beautiful testimony that Paul gives to each one of us, especially in the book of Ephesians, he says, you are adopted into the family of God. Jesus looks at his disciples. He says, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. We are brought into the family of God. We are the people of God. We are the saints of God. I will be your God. As God came and dwelt with them in the tabernacle and in the temple, so the, ta- the, the veil was rent from top to bottom to give access to the holy of holies, to those of us who are on the outside who were far away from God. And Paul tells us in Ephesians, those who are far away and those who are near, the dividing wall of hostility has been brought down and we can now enter into the holy of holies. He is our God that we can talk to personally. He says, I will bring you into the land that I promised you. The scripture says that we are sojourners in this life. The New Testament says that we are just travelers here. Paul says that we are citizens of another city, of Zion, that one day heaven and earth will pass away and behold, there's a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem and that is where we will be with God and he will be our people and we will live forever with him and there will be no more tears, no more suffering, no more death, no more trials, no more tribulations, no more temptations. It's ours in Christ Jesus. That is delivery, and I will give it to you as a possession. One of the beautiful things Paul says there in the early parts of Ephesians is he says that in Christ, we have been given every spiritual blessing as an inheritance. And he says that we inherit as sons every spiritual blessing. Now, some of you women may not like that, but you better like it because here's what Paul's saying. He's talking to men and women And he says, all of you will inherit as if you were sons. Why does Paul say that? Because in his day and time, sons were the only ones that got an inheritance. The daughters didn't. Paul was stepping across some lines there and saying, all of you, men and women, will inherit every spiritual blessing as if we were all sons. We will all get it. It is all ours. It is this beautiful invitation into the family of God, the presence of God, the blessing of God, the prosperity of God, the eternal nature of God. And it all comes at the end when he delivers us into that land. So what I'm telling you is this. What he's laying out here is a foreshadowing of what is to come. What we're talking about here is physical. What God delivers in the New Testament is spiritual, and it's much more long-lasting. God is demonstrating in a physical way that he is faithful to the promises so that you and I can trust him in the spiritual, things that are even harder to see and believe and understand and hold on to. He wants you to see that he's faithful here so that you will know that he's faithful here and that you can trust him in the difficulty that you walk through. Now, when you're tempted to doubt, 
to question his character or to even believe that he exists. God loves to make promises, but we often fail to believe them. And it's why we live in the circle of doubt that we find ourselves wandering in. We know God, we know his name, we're familiar with aspects of God, but we don't trust him. We don't believe that he actually can take our lives and do something with it that's phenomenal, that's powerful, that's big. Look at what it says in verse 9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Now, there's two things I want you to see here. Number one, Moses goes to the people. They believe him. He goes to Pharaoh. He gets shot down. He goes back to the people. He gets shot down. Do you see how it's easy for him to doubt? Do you see how he's questioning the goodness of God? Do you see how he's sitting there going, what in the world have I gotten myself into? I told you this was going to be this way. I told you they weren't. I told you I was somehow going to mess this up, and I did it. I don't know what I did. I just did what I was told to do, but I told you I'm just not good with words. I'm not good with my presence. Nobody believes me. I don't have that presence that's commanding of someone's authority. And so I went in there, and he didn't believe me, and he sent me away, and now the people are miserable, and you're not doing anything to help it. Who's more powerful here? It looks like Pharaoh is. Nobody's going to listen to me. But I think that even as important it is to note that is the second part. Why did they not listen? It had nothing to do with Moses at all. Because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. They couldn't believe that their life could be any better than it was right then. Moses, quit filling our head with all that false hope. Moses, quit coming around and telling us that God loves us, that he cares about us, that he wants what's best for us. If he did, why are we in this situation? Why are we going through this? Guess what, my friends? This is important for us to understand, not only for ourselves, but as you go out and share the gospel with other people. Because you know what you're going to do? Because of you've experienced this, and maybe you're walking in this great place with God, and you've seen him being faithful, and you've grown in your understanding of him, and you've learned to trust him, and then you begin to share the gospel with other people, and they're like, I don't want to have anything to do with that. And you're like, come on, just trust him. It says it right here. This is what's true. This is what's not true. This is what's yours. Just believe it. Come on, embrace it. And they're like, no, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Why don't they? They don't because... They're hurting. They don't want to believe it because their spirits are broken. They don't want to believe it because their slavery and their sin is so harsh. Their circumstances are so difficult that they can't conceive of a God who loves. Because if there was one, why doesn't he rescue me from this? And you know what that means for you? You have to understand in this scenario how God responds to them. God doesn't say, Well, that's it then. If you don't trust me, nothing else I can do for you. See ya. I don't need your help anyway. I mean, I was going to rescue you, but oh, if you don't want to do it your way, go ahead. See if you can overthrow Pharaoh. All right? You do that. You come back and tell me if you, you know what? Forget you. I don't care anything about it. You go do what you want to do. If you want to be slaves in Egypt, you be slaves in Egypt. That's fine. Because I'm fine without you. 
And ultimately, what does God do? He's patient with them. Why? Because he knows, and he hears, and he sees, and he remembers. And although he would love for them to just immediately respond with this trust, he knows it's going to be a process for them to understand who he is and understand what faithfulness looks like in a difficult situation. And you know what? We've got to be compassionate for those that we've been called to minister to, those who don't yet believe, who don't yet know. You can't sit there and go, it says it right here. This is what you got to do. And if you don't do this, you're going to hell. And if you do, if you do this, then you go to heaven. And he's like, you know what? I already live in hell, and I don't believe there is a heaven. And that's where you have to say, instead of believe, 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 you got to show compassion. You got to build a relationship and you got to say, tell me how you feel. Tell me about that circumstance that you're in. Tell me what happened to you a long time ago. You know what? For some people, that's the first step to their healing is to just be able to talk out loud about something that happened to them. Just to be able to know that another human being has compassion on them and cares enough to go, wow, that is incredibly difficult. I can't imagine what it's like to walk that way. And I completely understand why you would doubt God. And I just hope that you will trust him and give him a chance. Because, you know, I'm not judging you, but the way I see this is if you don't do something, you're always going to live in this. And yet you have an opportunity to maybe trust God with something. And I know it's scary because you don't know where it's going to go. But how is that any different than where you are? You know, it's that kind of compassion that listens and hears and sees and knows. It's exactly what God displays to the people of Israel. And it's exactly what we should be as we represent God to the dying world around us. Those who don't yet know. Those who don't yet believe. Look at the last part of that. Verse 10. So... The Lord says to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Ultimately, God says to them, hey, I need you to go and do this. And they're like, but he's not going to listen. He didn't listen the first time. The people aren't even listening. Listen to me. Go and do this. Just trust me. Walk step by step. Take this first step and just see if I won't be faithful to you. And then the beautiful thing is what comes next. It's the part that we always skip in scripture and it's the genealogy. And there's something beautiful in that that God has for us to see. Before he sends them back, he sends them into this and shows him his faithfulness to the generations. And basically he's gonna say this, give you a little spoiler alert. If I've been faithful to all of these people, why would I stop with you? If I've done what I've said up to this point, what makes you think that I'm going to mess it up with you? If I've batted a thousand up to this point in history, what makes you think I'm going to strike out with you? And there's a beautiful picture there. And that is 
when you see the promise of 10, 11, 12, and 13, it shows us that even in their hurt, in their pain, in their misunderstanding, in their doubt, God still intends to be faithful to the promise that he made to Abraham. And you know what? That should be a beautiful confidence for all of us that God intends to be fully faithful to the church despite the times that we live in and the times that we walk through. They may seem incredibly overwhelming, but I want to remind you of something that I think is beautiful, and I'm going to wrap it up with this. Look back in verse 7, just for a second. Verse 7 has a very interesting word in it. It says, I will, what's the next word? I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. Now, what does, that, what does he mean? I will take you. It's actually the Hebrew word, laka. Now, here's what's interesting about that word. Laka is the first step or the first part of a Jewish wedding ceremony. It's not uncommon to how we have our weddings. What, what does the minister say? Do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? Do you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband, to have and to hold for richer, for poor, for better, for worse, sickness and death? Will you? Do you? I do. Now, here's what's beautiful. Not only is this word right here, but every step of a Jewish wedding ceremony that you find is found throughout the rest of the book of Exodus. It reminds us that God's just not giving freedom to his people. He's inviting them into a relationship. I want to be your provider. I want to be your protection. I want to be your God. You, of all the people in the world that I could have chosen, I've chosen you to be my special people, the apple of my eye. I've picked you, not because of anything you've done, not because you deserve it, just because I picked you. And I want to take you to be my people. And I'm going to be your God. And as your God, I'm going to watch over you and protect you. And I'm going to be faithful to you till death do us part. Wow. What a beautiful picture of a physical faithfulness that grows into this incredible spiritual faithfulness and this spiritual, what does the church become? The bride of Christ. Don't miss the beauty of what's behind these words because I'm telling you, it may be the only thing that can get you through the circumstances that you find to be so difficult. Let's pray. God, thank you for a word that gives us confidence in who you are in light of all that our circumstances say to us about you're not faithful, you don't love us, you don't care, you're not gonna provide. Lord, for us to step back and to embrace who you are and what you have done and what you've always been and what you'll always be. Lord, as we enter into a time of prayer and, and worship and just praising you in song and response, God, May you receive the honor and the glory 
that is due to you for the redemption that you have given to your people. You have been faithful forever. Faithful to your word, faithful to your promises, and loving towards all that you have made. 